Welcome to Libromania, a new podcast for the book obsessed from the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern. If you love books and all the things that make books great, this podcast is for you. Each week, I'll be presenting conversations with authors, designers, publishers, artists, biographers, critics, and scholars about the various things that make books worth celebrating. We'll be talking book design and bookstores, book printing and book collecting. We'll be talking about the lives and problems of famous authors and the science behind our love of books. We'll be chatting with working writers about their process and with scholars about the art of writing biography. This is chapter four, in which I chat with three popular writers of middle grade fiction about their process, what a good writer looks like, how they know a story is finished, and much more. Those three writers are S.D. Smith, Douglas McKelvey, and Jonathan Rogers. Mr. Smith is the author of a series of adventure fantasy novels, The Green Ember, The Black Star of Kingston, Ember Falls, The Green Ember Book Two, The Last Archer, A Green Ember Story, and Ember Rising, which is The Green Ember Book Three. Douglas McKelvey is the author of The Angel New Papa and the Dog, a chapbook of poetry called Cattail, Fish Scale, and Snakeskin, children's books like The Wishes of the Fish King, and has worked as a successful songwriter for many years. Jonathan Rogers is the author of the Wilder King Trilogy, which is The Bark of the Bog Owl, The Secret of the Swamp King, and The Way of the Wilder King, and he's the author of The Charlatan's Boy, as well as nonfiction works like The World According to Narnia, St. Patrick, and The Terrible Speed of Mercy, a spiritual biography of Flannery O'Connor. One of the reasons this show exists is to discuss writing, the process, the anxieties, the problems, the joys of writing with working writers. And because these three friends write for a similar audience, it seemed like a good idea to have them on together. So we chatted at length recently about the writer's life and everything that means. Hope you enjoy. Here's Esty Smith, Douglas McKelvey, and Jonathan Rogers. (laughs) As for some of the things that I wanted to discuss, I wanted to have all three of you on because you're kind of writing for similar audiences, as far as I can tell. I mean, maybe your intended audiences are not, I guess, what is most easily called young adult literature. Would that be a fair sort of species of literature that we can throw that under for all three of you? Or is that, would you not consider yourself that way? I think, I think in terms of middle grade more than young adult. Um, Me too. Okay. Yeah, I don't. I, I think young adult implies some things that aren't true about what I write. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, yeah. so uh, generally speaking, middle grade is is feels much more accurate for for me as, as well. Yeah, it, seem, it seems like YA is has become a bit of a, a I don't know a catch all for um, like edgier sorts of topics being explored um, that probably none of us are, you know, a lot of agenda driven kind of stuff gets, gets put under the YA. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I like that, that phrase agenda driven better than edgy because edgy is complimentary. <laughs> <laughs> you, do you consider the concept of edginess as a positive thing, Jonathan? Is that something that you are consciously going after when you write? Oh, no, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I meant that the, the term edgy, um, I don't know what I was saying. I, I don't know. I don't, I, I hope nobody thinks of anything I write as edgy. <laughs> well, okay. What do you mean when you say edgy? And I'd be curious to hear what you other guys think is on this as well. But Jonathan. I, mean, I mean, I think the word edgy gets used as a way of, of talking about not just topics, but the handling of topics that, that maybe expands our notion of what is, um, I don't know what the word is normal or acceptable. Um, hmm. And so I, I think there Doug used the, the word agenda driven earlier. I think in a lot of young adult fiction, the agenda is to expand the realm of what we think of as being 
normal behavior or acceptable behavior or, I mean, I'm sounding like an old man here. I don't, I don't mean to, but, um, but that's when I, when I say edgy, I think about, you know, moving to the edge of what's acceptable and then stepping, maybe stepping an inch or two over it. So that the next person comes along, steps an inch or two beyond that. Hmm. And that's not something I'm especially interested in my, in my own, you know, writing. Uh, I, I'm more interested in sort of inviting people back into a reality that, that is a good way to live. Um, and, um, and so when you put it in terms of edgy or not edgy, it, that's a, that's a strange way to talk about it. It sounds like I'm somehow, you know, if you're not edgy, you're somehow afraid of, you know, pushing the envelope or something. There's also a way of pushing, pushing people back toward, well, I think most writers think they're, they're pushing people toward reality. I think. Hmm. Um, and I'd be interested to hear what Doug and Sam have to say about that. Yeah. Doug, um, what, what do you think about that? This concept of edginess? Yeah, I, th- I think there are, I mean, I, I read a pretty wide variety of fiction. Um, and, you know, sometimes I'll intentionally pick up a, a YA novel or some, you know, bestseller novel at the airport just to kind of keep tabs on, on what's out there. Um, and there are certain books that as I sp- start to read them, I have an instinctive aversion to. And I think it has to do with this kind of agenda driven um, notion where, I, where I feel like almost like the, the writer has an agenda to sort of manipulate me into adopting maybe a certain set of beliefs that they have. Um, the, Sam, talks a lot about, um, hospitality in, in his writing that he wants to create a space with his writing of hospitality, Hmm. um, and welcome people into that and serve them through the stories that he's telling. And I think that's a really helpful paradigm, um, a, a helpful lens to look at, at the creation of stories through, because I think there are a lot of stories that, that kind of try to do the opposite um, mm-hmm. rather than being stories that, that exist in this hospitable space that welcomes you in. Um, they have an agenda to push you uh, to something else to try to intentionally make you uncomfortable. If you don't subscribe to whatever worldview they might be positing in their story world. Hmm. And it, it begins to feel like propaganda, I think. Um, and that's where the instinctive aversion kicks in. And I've always loved the George Orwell quote, propaganda lies, even when it's telling the truth. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something about that. Um, you know, we, you live long enough and you start to, to develop filters. Um, I don't know, these little triggers that, Hmm. you know, you're aware when, um, when someone is trying to manipulate you, whether it's through political sound bites or, or, you know, something that's being more subtly espoused through a film or a, or a novel. So I agree with, with Jonathan's assessment of the word edgy and what that tends to mean and what it tends to occlude, um, 
you know, I think it's, it's a word that covers up the fact that maybe there's a kind of a pushy agenda underneath mm. something. Mm. Sam, do he, uh, Doug just mentioned that you talk about hospitality. Do you see that as um, sort of an antidote to what they're talking about, this sort of propaganda-based literature? Or do you see it as an entirely different uh, paradigm altogether? Maybe both. No, I, I, I can't. I feel like I'm not smart enough to sort of keep track of everything that's... I, I mean, I want to be um, a good student and I want to pay attention to, to what's happened before in literature and I like to read and think about things. But I, I feel like for me, I have to keep my sort of my vocation pretty simple. And as I want to just mm-hmm. tell really, I want to tell really good stories that, that aren't um, abusive or take advantage of... of of kids to sort of like what Doug was talking about, um, bringing sort of my own agenda, you know, Tolkien talked about sort of the allegory as like a purposeful domination of the reader by the author. And, um, even though I'm sometimes accused of, of, of allegory, um, I do sort of see that as an accusation because I, I don't, I don't do that. I don't want to do that. Um, not that there's not a place for that in some places. Um, but I think that uh, I, I do try to focus on um, very simply just telling a good story and, and being, like, like Doug said, hospitable uh, to kids. That doesn't mean when you're hospitable to someone, doesn't always mean you, you give them exactly what they want. Um, but it does mean you try to give them the best that you have for them and something that you yourself enjoy. It's kind of got the golden rule uh, mixed in there. And, and yeah, I, I, in the same way as the other guys, like I have that sort of aversion to being like the, the, this, it feels like the, even the word edgy, I think Jonathan was saying that it feels like that's a compliment and for a lot of people would consider that a compliment, but I feel the same way. Like that does not interest me at all. Like that doesn't feel hospitable. It doesn't feel kind. It doesn't feel, um, it's not even interesting. It feels tedious to me to think about like, what edge, what edge are you talking about? Uh, it feels like there's an implied, like it's like a transgressive, sort of impulse. And I'm just not interested mm-hmm. in that at all. I think that's boring and, and it's not, and it's just, I don't think it's good on the, on the virtue side of things, like the morality kind of a thing, which I care about, but it's also just boring on the storytelling side. I don't think what's the point of, it's almost like I can't tell a good story. So I've got to be transgressive. I've got to be edgy or um, if you, maybe you can, but it just feels like that's a different thing. And, and what, what's the point of that? Um, that just feels like that's all about like, how can I be interesting as an author uh, when it's much more interesting uh, for a storyteller to disappear and, and let the story speak. And so I, I think that sort of transgressive edgy um, impulse is just boring. And, and I don't, uh, I don't want to have any part of it. Do do any of you, I guess Sam, you can go first on this. Do you ever find that you're sort of, who uh, baser, less imaginative instincts and in storytelling sort of drift that way and then you have to correct them? Or is that something that's just so instinctively sort of innately not a part of who you are that it's not even a temptation for you as you're kind of in the process of maybe writing a story at the beginning or a scene or something like that? Hmm. Well, I mean, to me, so this is because my, my particular little world of storytelling has so much to do with my own kids and the stories that I tell them that yeah. to me, it, it feels like a, like a vacation from my own, uh, uh, you know, challenges with, uh, thinking myself and the things that are, that are temptations to me or, or, or 
problems for me. So I, that, I don't feel like I need to sort of like avert myself in those moments. It just feels like this sort of play playground for, for, a, for a healthy imagination because I'm thinking about them and thinking about serve them, serving them. And there's so, so like so many things in life, like when you're sort of focused on other people and, and um, especially um, kind of vulnerable people like, like your own children that you love, you, so it feels like the best for me, the best instincts tend to, to kick in. And I don't, I don't feel like I'm battling like a desire to like make something, um, uh, to have characters grapple with something there. And in, in my stories, they do, there, there are, there's some violence that can be a little bit intense. It's not, it's not gory or anything like that. I think it's still, but I, I, I don't want to say that there's no, um, heaviness or darkness. I think there is quite a bit, but I, I, th- I view that sort of within the purview of, of, of being hospitable to the kids because of the intensity of life and because of what, what kids are going to face. I, I don't, I do find myself sometimes thinking, well, what should I, but for me, I think it feels, um, I don't actually spend a whole lot of time worrying about sort of like content issues. It feels what I'm doing, whether it's good or bad feels, uh, pretty, um, I don't know, natural or, um, it's, it feels like one thing follows the next. I don't, I don't have a lot, I don't spend a lot of times, like a lot of time contemplating and worrying about that. So Jonathan, what about you on that, on that question, on that front, what he's describing there? Do you have a, so do you worry about that at all? Or do you just sort of. Not really to tell you the truth. That's, that doesn't that, that really enter into the, the equation for me. Um, the, I mean, I, the, you phrased it in terms of base instincts. Is that how you, you put it? Well, I was kind of, yeah, I guess I was, you guys were kind of describing it as this negative, uh, unimaginative sort of approach, or at least Sam sort of seemed to allude to that. So I was thinking when you're in the process of writing a scene or, or a story, and maybe you don't have it fully fleshed out and you're just kind of working on it at first, is there an instinct, sort of a baser instinct as you're sort of, you know, trying to get through a scene or something that you kind of drift towards those things and then you have to correct yourself? Yeah, no, I, I don't. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say so. You know, I've never thought, Oh, I, I could do something really, you know, crass here. Oh no, maybe I shouldn't do that. That doesn't really enter into the equation. Doug, what about you? I mean, maybe the question, maybe we should just move on. <laughs> well, no, I, I actually have a bit of a different answer. So, um, for me, I think it, it depends on what, um, what hat I'm wearing. Hmm. I mean, if I'm writing something aimed at middle grade readers, then, then there's a certain tone and certain parameters and the kind of uh, dilemma or process that you're describing doesn't come into play. But there are times when I'm writing something and I, I guess part of my process as a writer is that I, um, I, I don't judge what I'm writing on the first pass because no Mm. one is going to see that. And so often I don't know where a story is going. And so I'm in the middle of this scene as it's unfolding and I'm kind of looking for my reference points and trying to get oriented within this story and, Mm. and who the characters are. Yeah. And so there are certainly times when I've followed, well, so there was, um, Jonathan and I both were invited to participate in the wing feather tales story, um, or in the wing feather tales collection of, of short stories. It was supposed to be short stories. <laughs> and 
I Mine was, just, man. <laughs> yours was. No, yours was a poem. <laughs> <laughs> so neither of us fulfilled the requirement. But we were Surprised. supposed to write short stories. Jonathan wrote a poem, and I wrote a novel-length story. Um, <laughs> but I probably had a dozen different iterations of that story as I tried to feel my way through it because I began just following a character and had no idea what their journey was going to be. And in one of those iterations, the main character that I was writing about became very vindictively violent <laughs> and for a, for a sustained period of the story. And, you know, as I was writing it, it, it felt right. And, and I finished that version of the story. And then I stepped back and started scratching my head and saying, this collection of stories is for families. <laughs> um, you know, it's not for Cormac McCarthy's readership. <laughs> so then I had to go back about halfway into the, into that tale and start again and follow the character in a very different sort of direction, hmm. um, which ultimately turned out to be much more satisfying. And um, so I would say that, yes, there are times when, um, because I don't know where a story is going, that I'll follow it down on a path. I, whether I would describe it as giving in to base or instinct, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it's, if it's that. Yeah. Um, I, I think the the most pointed examples of when I've come up against that, though, were actually when I was dabbling in screenwriting and was in L.A. going through some screenwriting classes. And you know, one of the one of the writers there who was also an instructor, but had been the showrunner for a major sitcom for a number of years, he said, if you're hired on a writing staff, um, you are being paid to have no filter on what you say hmm. <laughs> that, that in the writer's room as they're brainstorming story ideas and, and throwing out potential lines for scripts and story ideas. Um, you know, that there is this sense in which they want you to have no filters in that brainstorming time, which I could never I could never reconcile myself to, but there was, there was certainly that tension hmm. being in that environment um, hmm. where, you know, when I'm writing books, I can write that first draft and step back, evaluate it, completely rewrite parts of it, knowing that no one else is ever going to see the first draft. Hmm. Um, hmm. But yeah, there's a, a different dynamic apparently in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> so Doug is the is the bad boy of the panel. Okay, we've, we've established that. Yeah, you're so edgy. You're pushing. You are really edgy. I mean, it's the, the edginess, which means I'm boring. <laughs> yeah, now that we define that. Hey, so you guys are kind of all talking about something that I'm completely fascinated by, and I ask people this all the time. I ask this of of poets and um, I've asked it of screenwriters before and even painters, but how do you know when what you're working on 
is right? How do you know, for example, that you're done? And and Doug, you're just talking about how you you're writing the story and you kind of followed this one version of the story and it took you down this this particular path and it felt right and then you get done and you look at it and you you conclude that it's not right and in that case you're able to look at your audience and say, well, these people are not most likely reading Blood Meridian every Thursday with their kids, so probably not probably not the best approach. But I mean, is is it as simple as looking at your audience and saying? this is either appropriate or inappropriate for them? Or is there, I mean, or is there more to it than that? How, how do you know when you've got, you're on the right track? And Jonathan, I'll turn to you on that one first. Um, I mean, my, for me, it, it, this might be a complete answer, but it, it just has to be something that I like. I mean, you know, I, I never try to tell a joke that I think some kid might find funny, but I don't find funny. I mean, it, that mm-hmm. never, ever works. So you <laughs> know, all the, all the funny stuff in my book is there because I think it's funny. And you know, hopefully other people do too. And you just happen to have a sense of humor that 10 year olds drive with. <laughs> As it turns out. Yeah. <laughs> what, what are the funny parts? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, um, and I don't know any other way to judge it, except that do I, do I like it? And also I think one thing I was talking to one of my writing students about recently is um, the story has to, to surprise the, the writer. If it doesn't surprise the writer, it's not going to surprise the reader. And so I'm looking for something that is, that is, I, I very often, or I shouldn't say very often, every time I write a story, I'm always have to be open to the possibility that I don't really know how it's going to end. Um, right, I right. usually think I know how it's going to end and I'm usually wrong about that. Hmm. So I won't really start writing if I don't have an idea of where this thing is going. I, I get the feeling from Doug sometimes that maybe Doug, you'll, you'll just launch into it and have no idea where it's going to go. And I, I can't really do that. I, I can't, I can't just go with no plan, but I also have to hold that plan very loosely because it always turns out that late in the process, I realize how this thing is going to, there's some surprising ending that comes to me. And, um, and, and I don't usually consider a story complete until that has happened. Hmm. Hmm. So it surprised me a little bit. So that's kind of an indicator for you. If, if you, you, if you haven't, come across something that kind of surprises you or takes you, then, uh, you're not there yet. Yeah. I mean, it's probably, if it doesn't surprise me, it's not going to surprise anybody else. Hmm. Doug, what do you think about that? I mean, how do you know when something's right? A similar answer. Um, I'm writing for that moment when the story gets away from me, when the characters begin to make choices that surprise me that I didn't see coming until I reached that very moment Hmm. in the process of writing. Hmm. And, um, this, this is probably a funny image to imagine me sitting alone in a room in my house. Um, you know, trying to write through tears and sobbing, (laughs) but that, that has happened to me several times in in the writing of stories. Um, and I, I, I agree with Jonathan that that kind of moment is one where you suddenly realize this, there is something to this story that it's taken on a life of its own, that it's gone a bit feral on you. And <laughs> now you're just chasing it. Whereas before you were kind of trying to pull it along. Um, now you're just trying not to lose sight of it. And, you know, you're just following the path that it's blazing. And that's a very real 
thing for me um, when I'm writing that if that magic moment doesn't happen, then I probably am going to end up with a manuscript that I'm going to set aside for hmm. several years. And I was just going to ask that. If I can figure out what's wrong. Yeah. And, you know, where, where the story went wrong. Yeah. yeah. Sam, same with you. Uh, no, no, I, I, my, mine are just like, if, if it's completely predictable and <laughs> it goes exactly as I have planned. And if the, if the, if it steps out of line for one second, then, uh, with it back in shape as a writer yeah definitely definitely no i, I that that is uh, that rings true for me as well um i i've I, I probably would not have been able to articulate that as well as those guys be a big surprise um have but uh but yeah that, that's definitely the feeling i i, I have finished i think well, I've written three big books, I guess, in, in the Green Ember series. And and I think my first one I can just discount because it was, I didn't know what the heck I was doing. It was just such a crazy uh, period. Uh, but I think the second book, when I finished writing my, my first draft, I, I didn't like it that much. And, and I, um, I can remember getting feedback and there was just something I don't even, I can't even really articulate what was wrong, but it wasn't. And I got some feedback from a really wise early reader that I trust a whole lot. Um, and he, he gave me some specifics of what he thought, well, this isn't what worked because of this. And, and, um, I think you know, some of that was right. Some of it was wrong, but anyway, it, for somehow I was able to sort of like fix it and then it was, Oh, then it was okay. And that, that was a, that was a, I just knew, I don't, I don't, I didn't know what was wrong, but I knew something was wrong. So it just didn't set right with me. And then the, the last book, um, I, I had a, had a completely different experience with that. And, and I felt great about it the whole time. Like I felt this is really good. I really, and I, and I, it's my favorite book of, of mine, which may not be a super high standard, but, uh, I, I, I really enjoyed it and I felt great about it. And, it, and it's, and, and it's funny how that has sort of, I feel like my instincts, um, along those lines have been roughly pretty aligned with sort of the feedback I've gotten from the people who enjoy our books. They, they have that same kind of like, Oh, I can, this is, and so I, I, I don't know how to sort of name it. I, I wouldn't name it just as I wouldn't have said it's because of surprised. Hmm. I wouldn't have said that, but the, when he, when Jonathan describes it, I think, Oh yeah, that's hmm. yeah. And then when, when Doug talks about sitting and crying through right, trying to write a scene that I, I can, I relate to both of those things uh, in a big way. Um, but not but, the feral um, story part. You don't. You don't. No, no, no. My <laughs> my my beard is much less feral than <laughs> than Douglas's. Um, you know, when you start writing, you're you're writing under your own power, and and you're you're working out of the skills you have and the and the um, just the ideas that that you have that you're aware of. Um, and that's, you know, when I teach writing, that's kind of all you can teach is the skills and the, and getting in touch with your own ideas. But then at some point in the process, um, if you are you know, blessed, you start writing, not out of your own, not under your own steam, something there, there's some, if you, if you hang in there long enough, it, it just, and, and as Doug has pointed out, sometimes that means putting it away and not coming back to it for a while. But eventually you're writing from somewhere beyond yourself. And, um, and I, I think this is true for not just for published writers. I think this is true for anybody who really sticks with it long enough. And, um, and that's really, 
I think that's what we're all talking about here is getting beyond your own steam and, and even beyond your own ideas. And when you're at the beginning, all you've got is your own ideas. And then somewhere along the line, something beyond your own ideas and your own um, talent kicks mm. in. Mm. I was going to ask if a question about, well, so can a, can a writer be a good writer if he or she doesn't pursue that sort of sense of surprise? I mean, is that something you can not maybe pursue is the wrong word, but if it, if he or she isn't open to that, I mean, if can, can you be a good writer and, and be very sort of rigid about your approach? I mean, are those two things possible at the same time. Doug, I'll ask you that one first. I don't feel qualified to, to give a blanket answer to that because um, I would say with as many writers as there are that almost certainly there That's are fair. some who are, who are writing compelling things without that being a part of their process. And now I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> yeah. I mean, think about a journalist. I mean, pe- people who are cranking out writing on deadlines, some of those people are brilliant writers and, and they're doing, you know, I don't think they're, I think they have skills and talents that that they can rely on day in, day out. And I, I think that's, I don't think you can, you can just say great writing or, or good, let's just say good writing you know, requires, you certainly can develop the skills to crank out good writing day after day, you know, bloggers, I, you know, somebody like, uh, well, I, I there, there are plenty of people in this world who crank out excellent writing day in, day out because they have, have acquired the habit and the skills and the, so, so I definitely think David, there are people who, who write brilliantly under their own steam. Um, you, and you, uh, I'm not sure in fiction writing, it'd be kind of hard to do that in fiction writing, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's kind of, I guess that's the angle I was thinking. So is there a difference between what some people would call formula and what you guys are describing here? Like, can you write, sort of according to a formula like, like as common maybe in, I don't know, genre fiction or something, and then still have that sense of surprise or does, or do you argue that the more formulaic you are in terms of sort of meeting certain beats and relying too much on archetypes or at least relying a lot on certain archetypes, does that sort of eliminate the possibility or, or diminish the possibility of that sense of surprise for you? Sam, what do you think on that one? Um, yeah, I, I'm not, I'm probably the least qualified to talk about sort of the, the world of, of fiction or writing as far as I think that my own experience is very, is pretty narrow in, in a lot of ways. I, I, mean, I recently have co-wrote a, a screenplay and I find that even in that, like my partner had to be the one that was like, no, this is what you do in screenplays. Like it has to be, you know, this has to happen in the third, first act, third act. We're sort of adapting my story to the uh, constraints or the formula of, of the screenplay. Yeah. Um, and and I, I found that very difficult, but I, I sort of understand it. And, and I appreciate sort of the way audiences think through things and why something feels like it wouldn't work or would work. And I'm still a, a rookie in that world, but I, I don't particularly like that. I find that difficult. And I, I, uh, and so much of it is, is just instinct for me. Like, and and I almost feel like it's, it's, I have to, and if I think I want to keep learning, I want to keep, I want to, I want to pay attention to things, you know, the craft, but, but I have to sort of rely on, on instinct a whole lot. And so when, when that's um, uh, interrupted by sort of formulaic machinations, 
then I, I, I struggle <laughs> with that uh, big time. So I, I, to me, I have to be pretty free uh, or my experience so far is that I, I've enjoyed being pretty free of formulas and when writing fiction myself. Doug, you, Doug, I was to say Doug's the person I ask because he's between screenplays and, and writing radio hits. He's, he's knows about formula. <laughs> and he's edgy too. He's super edgy. <laughs> so given that you're the expert and you're edgy, Doug, what, what do you think about that? I mean, formulas, obviously, I don't, maybe, maybe it's even the wrong word, but it's a, it's a real thing that certain writers, as Jonathan even indicated with journalists and things like that, that they have to work, you have to work within the constraints of sometimes. So how does that impact that sense of surprise for you? I think that there are definitely people who write from some kind of a formula but who also leave enough breathing space in what they're doing that they're able to, to um, encounter some of those unexpected moments in the writing process. Um, and I think that there are also people who, who write from a formula who, um, you know, there are some writers whose, whose strongest gift is um, a feel for the language. Mm. Um, there are other writers whose strongest gift is creating a story. Um, you know, there are books where the story is compelling, even though the writing might not be, um, you know, the, as beautiful and poetic as you would hope, but you're still um, drawn in by the story itself. And so I, I think those, um, you know, Jonathan and I have described the uh, how that moment of surprise when the story gets away from us um, kind of happens for us in the writing process. But I think of an acquaintance I have who has written a number of mystery novels. Um, and he told me that he begins with an outline um, of the story and then begins to fill that outline in to the point that ultimately he has one sentence written for every paragraph that's going to be in the book, um, that his outline is that detailed and then he fills it in, um, which at first blush seems so formulaic that, that there would be no room for that kind of spontaneous, um, moment in the story. But I think there actually can be, it's just that it happens in the outlining process for him. Mm -hmm. Um, it doesn't happen in the actual writing Mm -hmm. of the story, Mm -hmm. but it happens in the creation of the story, which he's already done in great detail. So I think there are so many, so many ways to approach the writing of a story. Um, and you just kind of have to learn what your strengths are and what process, um, is going to, to work for you as a, as a writer. So I'm, I'm kind of shy about making any sort of blanket statements about, um, using formula or not using formula. I think there have been a lot of great stories told both ways. We need to develop a formula for what makes a formula acceptable. (laughs) I think, no, I, I, I think uh, that, that what Douglas brings up is so perfect because the mysteries are, that's like almost like screenplays in, in other way. They are, what I understand is that those are 
there is a pretty tried and true formula uh, for for what makes a mystery work. So that's a really good example. And I was just thinking of like sonnets and sort of other yeah. sort of literary forms that have um, that have that have fences around them. And I and I was just thinking about how interesting limits are in storytelling. Like if you if you um, you know even uh, even if it's sub subcon- subconscious for for us thinking about being hospitable to kids, like that's a that's a fence you know that's not that that's limits so it's funny when you asked about sort of baser instincts i think all of us were kind of like well or like that doesn't when you're thinking about writing for kids that's just not a that's not there but that is a fence there is a fence there and and uh, of all the things that are we're capable of doing or telling in stories like that and, and i think that that makes i think there's so many interesting things i think uh, we we are so fascinated our sort of our cultural religion is so fascinated with edginess and transgression and and think outside the box and all that. We think of creativity as, as uh, going beyond the bounds. And I think there's something fascinating about like the edge of the map and um, thin places. And I, I think that's always fascinating in sort of in a romantic, uh, healthy way. But there's also so much, I mean, we think about just even just about marriage, like marriage is this sort of uh, gate. It's sort of this limit. It's, but it's a voluntary limit. That's, that's, probably the most celebrated romantic sort of element of life for any kind of literature or creativity, like people that love romantic love that, that culminates in marriage is this something that's been celebrated for, for generations and, and should be, it's wonderful. And it's sort of this picture, this big picture about the, the, the big story, capital S story that, that sort of echoes and harmonizes with reality. So I think, I think fences and gates and limits are super interesting for characters. Like we don't like characters that are omnicompetent. We like characters hmm. that have limits. We like hobbits more than we like Superman, I think, or I do. Yeah. Um, and, and so I just think that, that that could be true of storytellers too. And maybe like, I, maybe I'm just thinking being convicted, especially as Doug was talking that maybe my, my own convictions about this are, are small and that there are probably some gates, like some, somebody like maybe Agatha Christie, if she was on here, she'd be like, no, there's a formula and it works and it's awesome and people love it. And it's great. Um, maybe she would say that. Yeah, this- um, I think that's, that sounds like something she would say. It does. And, and uh, the sonnet is such a great, is such a great example. Um, yeah. I, mm-hmm. I do think there are, there are a certain way of formulating storytelling in say sitcoms and um, some certain kinds of popular fiction that, that really are, they are limiting, but mm-hmm. I guess I would say that, that those kinds of formulas are a good place to start. I mean, sometimes, yeah. and I don't know if we're talking about you, constraints and, and formulas, are those the same thing? The constraints are so incredibly important and so incredibly helpful. And if you've ever seen a, if you've ever watched a movie or read a story that was free from all constraint for crying out loud, it's just completely unreadable. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, grammar is a constraint. If you don't follow the constraints of grammar are a way for us to, to communicate with one another. And, and I mean, you know, grammar broadly speaking, you know um, and so all those constraints is, I mean, the only way we can connect with one another is, to, is through constraints. We say we have agreed that that you, you know, <laughs> the English language. <clears throat> if we speak English, we agree to use these words, and we're not going to use made-up words, or otherwise, we're not going to communicate with one another very well. Mm-hmm. And so, I am uh, I, I am pro. I'm definitely pro constraint. And when we talk, speak of it in terms of formula, it's hard to get as excited about about that language. Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. But constraints, yes, give me constraints all day long. 
Hmm. Think inside the box. That's that's my uh, yeah. That's my new catchphrase. It's a great one. Hmm. Hey, so this is a slight detour, I suppose, but I think it's still related. Um, how do you know? Like, how do you pursue an idea? So when an idea comes to you, or strikes you or begins to interest you in some way. What is it? What is the process by which you're pursuing that idea and beginning to think of it in terms of as more than just a sort of concept or an idea, but to begin thinking of it as a story and kind of begin wrangling it into something and chasing it. Doug, how does that work out for you? I don't know if this is true of every story that I've started and I've certainly started several times as many stories as I've finished writing, but there seems to be a, a pattern that when I initially jump into the writing of a story, um, I give away an awful lot on the first page or two. Um, especially if, if I'm writing in the voice of a first person narrator to the story. Hmm. Um, yeah. So there's, you know, as, as a writer, I don't know how it's all going to fit together, but I already know that there are, you know, these several things that are going to happen somehow that the, the story is going to go these places. Um, so then it's a matter of continuing to chase that down, um, being able to maintain the voice of the character, which is something that I, I sometimes stumble with if I get interrupted um, and have to leave the story for weeks or months or, mm. or in some cases years and then come back to it, trying to get back inside that sort of instinctive sense of, of how the character communicates. Um, but there's something that I, I don't even know why I haven't tried to articulate it before, but that I just love about a character just kind of initially saying so much in broad strokes that then the rest of the book is going to be going back and filling in all the details and connecting those big dots that the, that the character has, has just given, um, and if I think about it, I suppose that it probably is an instinct that I tend to, to approach the beginning of a story that way. If it is, um, a first person narrator and I probably don't do that if I'm writing in the more detached, omniscient narrator, third person voice, um, hmm. Hmm. Do you see that as like creating a problem for yourself that, that, to, that you, so that you can solve it in an I interesting think, way? Yeah. I think that probably is a huge part of it. Um, but I think it's also something that gets me excited about the story in the same way I would be if I was a reader reading that first page, oh, because yeah. I don't know how these things are going to play out, but you know, I have these three, four, five, um, major plot point kind of things that have, that have been thrown out there. And now I'm going to have to figure out how to, how to connect those dots, how to, how to bridge um, those elements in the narrative. And I guess for me, that's a way in, maybe it's kind of like a, a 
you know, someone hunting for gold, digging, um, digging a number of different holes initially to try to find, okay, where, where do we, um, actually put the entrance to the, to the mine and spend our effort digging into that. I don't know. That might not be a good analogy, but, but I just watched the ballad of Buster Scruggs last night. <laughs> just <in my> head. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good that's my, probably my favorite uh of all those short films um is, well the minor one so do, is there a point at which you know a story or a setup or a character is worth turning into a novel or something longer like i mean you or or even just got completed short story or is it just something that just kind of just happens and then you look back and you're like well i guess this should become something real or i just did something real yeah i think i'm um what keeps me going beyond those first few pages in a story is probably when the character begins to feel real. Um, I begin to care about them. Um, and I've, I've, I've had, um, well, there's a story I was working on a few months ago. That was actually one I started years ago, but had set aside. Um, and I returned to it and realized that part of the the problem with it was that I didn't care about several of the characters yet, that I didn't know them well enough to care about them. And that that was a hindrance to trying to write the story. Um, so, you know, I, I had written a number of chapters previously, but reached a point where the story just kind of, faded off in several different possible directions and I just didn't know how to pull it together. Um, so I think that's at least a, a partial answer to your question is that when the, when the characters begin to feel real and I begin to care about them, including, and maybe even especially, um, those characters who are, um, you know, who are going to make destructive choices, who are the bad guy, as it were, in the story. Um, mm -hmm. That, you know, I need, I recognize that as, as the writer of a story, I need to be emotionally invested enough, even in a character like that, that I lament the choices that they make in the story. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think once, once you reach that point with, with your characters, then you kind of have this sense that you just have to keep going to find out what happens to them. Mm. Mm. Jonathan, let me go over to you. What, so let me ask the original question and then the follow-up at once. So how do you pursue an idea? And then at what point do you know that that story or setup or character is worth sort of pursuing? Was is worth turning into something longer, like a novel or whatever? I think that's how I asked it. We'll, we'll, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> I and I think I can answer those together. You asked them together. I think I can ask, answer them together. It, 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 Doug has put it in terms of character. I think I would put it more in terms of a problem, which I think is a language that Sam used a minute ago. Um, you know, I, I'm looking for a a problem that seems big enough and hard enough to solve that it's worth writing about. Um, and so if, if it's a big problem, it might, it might be big enough for a novel. And if it's a little problem, it might be just 
Um, well, there's such thing as, as too small of a problem, of course. Um, but I, I didn't, I didn't know how to answer that question when you started asking it, but I think, I think I would put it in those terms. So, you know, in, um, early in night, early in 2019, I'm going to start writing the sequel to the charlatans boy finally after many years. And, um, and I've got a problem that I've been just, just turning over my mind for, I guess, seven years now, uh, trying to figure out how to solve that problem. Um, that is the central problem of the story. And, um, and I still don't quite know how I'm going to solve it, but at least I feel like I've got a direction to go in. And so I'm ready to finally sit down and write this thing. And, um, and so like I said, if, if it's a, if it's a problem that is hard for me as a writer to solve, that it feels like maybe it's, it's worth, um, writing a, a complete story or novel about. Mm, mm. Um, and if it's not, a, if it's not an especially hard problem, then it's not worth writing. Mm. And that's, that, I think I think of it in those terms rather than in terms of character, the way Doug was talking about. Sam, do you, do, is one of those two things true for you or is there something completely different? Uh, I think that they both feel really true. And um, I, I guess for, for me, I feel like I listened to Andy Crouch was at um, Hutchmoot in Nashville this year. And he was talking about how sometimes he was talking about a church setting, but he was talking about how sometimes an artist um, or what we call it, sort of artistic type people sometimes have their sort of antenna up in a way that other people don't. And he talked about how they're often aware that something's wrong. Uh, with a culture or something before other people. And I think that's true to some degree. I, w- I would also add, which I don't think he said um, that sometimes they're wrong about what the solutions are, but they uh, often write about what the problems are, which seems to be true a lot. Um, but I think, I feel like I have sort of that little, little bit of a net up about some things, but I think about it particularly about ideas or stories. Like I feel like I, there's a sort of involuntarily, I, I, my mind is just kind of going all the time. I was always like a little boy who sort of couldn't go to sleep and, you know, was just sitting and thinking about things. And, and sometimes that's, you know, on the bad side, that's like worry and anxiety and fear and uh, doubt yeah. and all those things. But on the, on the positive side, it's, it's got this sort of creative and um, generative in uh, the best case scenario, it's hospitable. And, and, um, but so, uh, so for me, I feel like I've always talking about chasing down an idea like that. The, the, feel like, I feel like a, like a kid who's sort of out in the forest of, of life, so to speak, and like, f- like finding a wounded bird and you kind of like put it in the box and bring it home and like take care of it. And I feel like that. And then, you know, you don't know what it's going to become. Is it going to be okay? And I feel like I do that a lot with different ideas. I'll sort of like, Oh, that'll occur, occur to me. And I'll kind of be excited. Like, Oh, that's, Ooh, what if he's like that? What if, what if this character is doing that? And what if that, or what if she decides to do this or what if this happens, what would she do? And so those are like all these little sort of ideas and they, and I kind of will write one down or I'll, if I have my phone with me, I'll kind of email it to myself and like all caps subject line, like, uh, what if he's a traitor, um, or what if he's actually this or something, you know, something like that. And, and, and it could be a story idea, um, sort of plot, uh, or a problem like Jonathan was saying, or it could be like a character thing. And I feel like I just sort of take those home and take that little bird home and kind of take care of it. And sometimes they just die. And that's, 
that's okay um, because who cares is just a bird. Um, uh, sorry, I got lost <laughs> in the story there for a second. But, uh, but no, sometimes it, it grows. Sometimes it flies away like limping. And sometimes it's like, oh my goodness, what did it become? It's just incredible. Wow, that's the thing I really care about. And so the, I feel like sort of like that. I've kind of mm-hmm. just got a, um, uh, some attention. And I, I don't think, I, I think I thought that that was normal, that, that, that people were always having like thoughts all the time. But I, I think that is a little bit maybe peculiar to people who end up like not being able to resist um, the, the allure and uh, amazing life of uh, storytelling. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, hmm. I thought you were going to say the people who couldn't, right. who couldn't do the job. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I was, I was thinking of that cliche that like, if you can, if you can not do it, then, if you can not be a writer, then, 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 then don't by all means, but if you, if you can't help yourself, then go ahead. And I just feel like, yeah, I'm probably one of those people that just can't well, sort of can't help himself. Well, one of my favorite questions for writers is right on that, on those lines. So is writing for you guys and Sam, I'll just go back. I'll go back the opposite way. Sam is writing for you painful or is it something that just kind of, for the most part, it tends to flow once you do it. Or do you feel like you're like the last thing you want to do is sit down and try to wrangle this into that something functional um I, you know I, I could overly complicate this but i think because i feel like i've had so many different experiences of this so, but yeah, but I, I feel like generally speaking probably it's fair to say that i think it's that starting is hard it, it's like um i mean i i'm an introvert and a homebody and uh, you know when i if i go travel to do like a, a author event or something like i don't this might be heartbreaking for people to hear, but like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> like I, that scares me. And it, and I don't, you know, as far as there's a big part of me, like very naturally, like by physical person, uh, the chemistry of me is like, that's not, that's not like, I'm not jumping out of bed. Like, yeah, I get to talk in front of people like that. It's not, but when I'm in the middle of it and I'm doing it after I've gotten over and I'm starting, I'm talking, I think, Oh, this, maybe this is valuable. And I'm looking at a little kid's face and they're listening. I think, Oh, I have something to say to them that might actually matter, you know, matter for their whole life. And I get kind of into it uh, because of that. And I sort of have to stay connected to sort of, again, going back to that hospitality thing, like that's, that that's where you get a lot of meaning. And so I don't ever want to start, but I, but once I'm into it, I think, Oh, this is valuable. And I feel the same similarly about writing generally. I, I don't, I'm, you know, it's, it's the most unnatural thing in a lot of ways for me. uh, And for, I think a lot of writers to like, to, to just sit down and do it. We all want to like do social media and like do other things related to it. Things that are easy, you know, things that are somewhat related, any kind of, you know, if you've read the war of art and any, the resistance will, will promise you everything if you'll just not sit down and write. And I, I think that's true, but I also think like if I've been, if I'm in a rhythm, like when I was talking about my, my last big book, Ember Rising, like I, I, that was soon after I quit my job. And so I was able just to come like every morning and write. And I, I was at that during that, I was loving it. And I was, I was excited to get back into it. And I couldn't wait. Cause those problems, like wherever we left off, I was like, Oh, how are we going to, so I've had every experience, but it's almost always, there's some kind of big barrier. And then when I'm in, I, I love it so much when I'm in it and time just goes by and I don't know what's going on. But the main reason I love it is because it's a break from me, not because it's like this, uh, the self-actualization or anything. It doesn't feel like that at all. It feels like, Oh, I didn't think about myself for three hours there. And I was just, I was totally lost in this world. And it's so relaxing. Like it, it, I don't think of writing as relaxing because it's, you know, it's 
sometimes it's hard on your body. It's sedentary and it's difficult um, to get into, but there's this sort of mental relaxation of getting lost in, in the story that doesn't, you know, that you're not thinking about yourself or how you're coming off or how you, you know, all these things that you worry about or I worry about. Um, and so I, so I, in that moment, it's just, it is pure joy. And it's the same kind of joy that I think a reader has. And that's where, you know, I think Douglas described it as sort of, instead of you dragging the story along, you're kind of chasing it. And that's how it feels to me. It's just, it's just exhilarating and it's so fun and it doesn't feel like work. It feels like, Oh, I can, I could do this forever. Um, and, and so that, so I, I feel like it's both are true. Like it's impossible. I hate it. I never want to do it again. It's awful. I can't. And then it's also completely exhilarating and wonderful and it's an escape and I love it. It's fantastic. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. And I can't even remember what your question was, but that, that's, that's my, <laughs> no, I think you, I think you got it. Jonathan, what about you? The pain uh, of writing. Yeah. It's, I, I find it very painful. Um, and, and as Doug, as Sam said, sometimes it's very exhilarating. And, um, I'm not an introvert. I don't, you know, it's, I'd like to be up, be out, you know, talking to people, drinking coffee and that kind of stuff instead of sitting at my desk. And I, it's like, I, I can only go into that cave to, cause there's no good way to write except to be by yourself. Best I can tell. And I think you have to be alone in a quiet place. And, um, and the only reason I can go into that cave is because I know there are people outside the cave who love me or who, who need what I can, can make in the cave. And, um, and so it's, it's hard for me to do it. I, I, um, I find it easier than I ever have now, but, um, but I, it's, it doesn't come naturally to me. Um, it's one of those things where this is my gift. I can, I know that I, that, that God gave me these particular gifts and it would be, a shame not to use them. And I do absolutely love connecting with readers. I like, you know, having a product that I can say here, I, I made this for you. Mm-hmm. So I love that part, but actually sitting down and writing is usually very painful for me. And, um, and then, and then there's that exhilarating part where you're, where you're, as we said, it kind of gets away from you you're chasing the story instead of, instead of pushing it along. And then it makes up for all the, for all the pain. Um, so like, like Sam, I, I have all kinds of different experiences, but probably the most common experience is, Oh, do I have to sit down and do this today? Hmm. Um, which is sounds very ungrateful because I'm, I'm very thankful for, you know, for, for having the opportunity to, to write, um, when it's done, <laughs> but actually sitting down and doing it is often not, it's not always fun to me. I have a follow up question for you, but I want to hear if Doug expresses something similar. Doug, what about you? Yes. Uh, my experience would be similar in a lot of ways. I, I'm very intimidated, um, by the prospect of sitting down and trying to write something and will do almost anything other than that. Um, you know, I'll have a day mapped out where, okay, I'm going to write today. I'm going to work on this story. And, um, then I'll spend the next several hours just with one little diversion after another. And oftentimes there, there are things that need to be done, but, um, it's a, it's a fight. And I think it's because it, the act of writing for me is something that I experience as, um, forcing me into very close proximity to my own insecurities 
um, to the fear that I'm not going to be able to, to pull this thing off that I'm going to go to that well and find that it's dry. Um, that, that I'm going to spend time working on something and the whole is never going to be more than the sum of the parts. Um, so I think there's, there's actually something that's often very humbling about writing because it, it, it forces me to confront and to be so aware of my own neediness and my own deficits and my own inability. Um, but there are also times that once I'm in the midst of, of the flow of writing that I have by, by some means crossed that barrier of intimidation and insecurity and, you know, for several days have really been inside a story and in the flow of it, that it's like being in a different, um, in a different dimension where time moves differently and where I had never thought of it in the terms that Sam described, but that lack of self-consciousness, I think becomes a very Mm -hmm. real and exhilarating kind of thing. And in those moments or those stretches of time of days or weeks when writing is really just flowing and the, the story is happening and, um, it becomes more effortless to the point that Hmm. when I finish something, I think, Oh, I should be able to output several novels a year. Um, (laughs) You know, I'm just going to stay in this place now, but inevitably, (laughs) I mean, that has never been the case because inevitably I finish something, you know, turn my attention to the things that, have to be done in my life. Um, the details, the taking care of, you know, whatever it is, contracts, marketing kind of things, just, um, let alone, you know, just the, the, the parts of life and, and family and, um, actually living as a person among people that take you out of that space. Um, and then I'm right back where I was, where it's so intimidating that that I can go months without um, making any real progress on fiction writing uh, because it just becomes as intimidating as it ever was to to try to find a way back into that process. So yeah. that that forgetting about self that y'all both talk about, that you know, it's it's. I agree. It's such a, that, that's really, I think that that still comes back to what we're talking about, about being surprised, about being beyond yourself. Um, that, that self forgetfulness is It's pretty, I mean, I feel like people get into people who are writers are pretty self-aware. That's part of the reason yeah. they do it in the first place. And yet that self-awareness and self-consciousness is so um, debilitating and it's so great to be free from it. And so it's not a coincidence, Doug. And I mean, I think it's what you're getting at anyway, that, that, that productivity you were talking about, that sort of, when you get in the flow, it's also when you've completely forgotten about yourself. And, uh, and in my, in my teaching of writing, it's, it's, you know, so much of it has to do with helping people forget about, stop thinking about themselves and think about 
the story or the reader or anything besides themselves. It's funny, this, this is basically becoming a commercial for, for, for all the young people who might be listening to it and be like, do not do this. Like, <laughs> they're like they sound miserable, yeah, yeah. but it is, that is, it is so, uh, <laughs> it, that is a wonderful, that is a, that is a really a transformative kind of experience. And I would just say like, if you haven't felt that, then probably the closest thing I can think of that, that to that, um, the equivalent of that in my experience has been like, a sometimes, uh, in like during worship, like that when you, if you, if you've had a, a religious experience where you're, where you really have somehow <laughs> gotten out of yourself and you're, and I'm not even talking just about sort of like a, um, exuberant experience or anything, but may not just, just if you're just focused on sort of the bigger picture, the bigger story or something, and you just like have forgotten about yourself in, in those moments of, uh, I think that's the only other area of life I can think of where I just, um, where I'm just not, where you think, um, I'm focused on wholly on the other and, and, uh, and it is, uh, it is really, really special. I, I imagine that great athletes probably oh, get in something, I guess when they yeah. talk about the zone, yeah. Yeah. Like a, a basketball player. Yeah, that's, that's, no, that's, uh, that's another one. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. It was funny because I haven't played sports that often and I've been trying to play basketball recently and, um, and, that, that, and I've forgotten how that is, that is exactly what it's like. It is so much like that where, where you're in, if you're, even if you're in a big game and it's amazing how little, you know, you could be the most self-conscious person, but, and, and, and fearful person, but, you know, I can remember times in college just thinking like, no, I'll, t- no, I'll take that shot. That's fine. Like ball's here. I'm here. I'm going to take, you know, and you just yeah. get in this sort of, I forget, you know, you forget what a worthless little person you are and you just get caught up in this moment. And it's, <laughs> that is, yeah, that's true. I forgot yeah, sports. That's another one. Yeah. So, so I was going to mention that I have a follow-up question and we're almost done here. I just have a couple more questions. So this follow-up question and then two, two rapid fire questions, hopefully for you. Um, so I know I've taken, too much of your time already, but how do you persuade yourself to endure this? Um, so you talk, the sense of like discipline, you have to discipline yourself to sit down and do the work. And you're not, unless you do the work, you're not going to get into that moment where you lose yourself. I mean, it's like the athlete, right? Unless you put the work in, you're not going to get into the point in the basketball game where you can successfully sort of get into the zone. So how do you, pers- and that's a negative way of putting it, but that's kind of how I think about it for myself. But how do you persuade yourself to sit down and do the work and be disciplined enough to actually do the writing? Douglas, I'll let you answer that one first. You know, the, I guess, I guess I would have two parts to my answer. One is that, um, I frequently fail to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I have, well, now I'm encouraged. So I feel better about myself. I have good intentions every morning that, you know, by lunchtime start to fade. Um, <laughs> but there are, um, I think a, a couple of years ago, I shared with Jonathan um, a little trick or life hack um, that a writer had posted that I had tried and found that it actually did work pretty well for me. And that was... Um, you know, the idea is that you sit down at your computer, you set a timer for one hour and you give yourself, you don't have to write, but you can't do anything else. You can't check email. You can't, you know, get up and exercise. You can't do anything else. Your choice is either to sit there and write or just to sit there for an hour. (laughs) Um, And when I actually implement that little exercise, 
I find that it usually works that once I've, you know, artificially, yes, but once I've set those parameters um, and narrowed everything down to that one choice, then I'm going to start writing. And then at the end of that hour, you reset your timer for another hour. And um, so I, th- I think for- you go to the bathroom yeah. and then you, yeah, you, you have that option in between. <laughs> um, but I think I, I sometimes need that kind of artificial structure um, to prime the pump, to force me into that space where I'm being productive as a writer. And then after, you know, after a couple hours of that, frequently the timer goes off and I just sit there and keep writing for another hour or two because, um, you know, I no longer need that structure. I'm now inside the story and, um, and experiencing that intoxication of, um, you know, of, of the lack of self-consciousness and just wanting to, to capture the ideas that are spinning in my head at that point. Um, Hmm. so yeah, I'm, for me, it's, it's kind of an extreme based thing, I guess, either I get nothing done or I have to be very intentional about, um, creating a structure for myself and being my own disciplinarian in that sense. Mm. (laughs) Sam, what about you? How do you make yourself do it? So to speak? Um, well, I think so that there are probably two, two motivations. I think Doug's talked about a a method, but if if you pull it back a little bit to, to sort of motivations and on my, on my, my sort of on the, on the less noble side, it would be like, this is my job. And, uh, I have kids that need to eat. And so I've got to like show up. And I think that's not, I don't think that's all that, um, lacking in nobility, but, um, but so I, so I think I've got to, I've got to work. <laughs> I've got to do, I've got to do this work because, uh, because this is, this is the, this is the business I'm about. So it's sort of this first province of my stewardship in life to take care of my family. I've got to, I've got to, do it. So I've got to show up and work. I think my better instincts are motivated when I think, when I do think about sort of the kids and I I kind of try to think, try to, I've got a, uh, sort of say ritual, but I've got sort of a, when I come out, I have a, a little office, um, out that's just sort of detached from my house. It used to be like a little garden shed. And when I come out here to work, I just, uh, sort of my, the way that I have it oriented, which I won't go into the whole thing, but my, some of the, the kids who I'm, um, who I, who are reading these stories, the kids whose letters are piling up on my desk, uh, they, they are pretty prominent in my mind. And I think about them, I care, and I care about them. So I try to sort of orient myself a little bit toward them and, and think about, um, um, sort of pray for, pray for them, like what they're, you know, and, and other things too. But so, so then, so then my, so that I hope some, and often does sort of fuel my, um, desire because it, it is amazing to me how quickly sort of, uh, the, other, less noble, um, motivations sort of fade pr- pretty quickly. Like it, it is amazing how uninteresting, uh, being, uh, 
know, trying to be famous or even having just like a little taste of that. It's, it is amazing how, how, how boring that can be, you know, like how that, how unfulfilling, maybe that's the way to say, like a lot of things that you think are, will be somewhat fulfilling, even in small, small doses. So it, I have to kind of get back connected to sort of like a little bit of a deeper thing. And so at my, at my best, I'm thinking, Oh, I've got to, I want to do this because there's a kid out there that's waiting. And it's, it's nice to be doing a series where kind of getting repeatedly reminded that people want the next, they're yeah, literally they're waiting. waiting and they're young and it feels like a thousand years to them. Um, when, you know, each yeah. day to them is like a thousand years. So, so that, so I, I, I feel like sorry for them and I want to like, I want to be motivated. So I think, yeah, so I, I want to be like, a, I want to be a pro, you know, I want to show up. I want to do it because it's my job and I want to, I want to do a good job at my, at my work and, uh, but I, yeah, it is that. So, and, and then sort of genuine compassion and, and interest and care for trying to give uh, kids something that they, they want. Those, those probably are the two motivations that, that keep me going through. But, but yeah, I like the other guys. It, it is so, uh, it is so challenging <laughs> to get there anyway. It's difficult. Hmm. Jonathan. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm going to answer the question exactly like, um, Sam and Doug did. Uh, Doug's technique I've used before. It's really helpful for me. Um, so there's the, there's one technique. And then very similarly, and I'm, I've told this story on probably one of your podcasts before, David, so I'm sorry. I, I, I tell this story all the time. There was I was just going through this horrible case of writer's block back, back in 2008, 2009, somewhere along in there, and was way behind on my uh, delivery date for The Charlatan's Boy. Hadn't written, probably hadn't written a hundred pages yet and, uh, and was way behind. And, and I just got an email from a reader who said, Hey, I really need this book and I wish you would write it. And, and it sort of took me out of this, this death spiral of, of, you know, of thinking of my writer's block as this little personal tragedy, <laughs> you know, and <laughs> yeah, realized that, yeah. that there are other people, you know, I'm not, I'm not really doing, I'm not really doing this for myself. And I mean, actually I was doing it for myself and that, sort of pulled me out of it, you know, mm. and, um, and just, just being pulled out of myself by remembering that, that for, for whatever reason, um, the work I do matters to people, um, that, that makes it possible for me to write. So, and just to riff on, on those ideas that Sam and Jonathan brought up, um, I, I think the yeah. biggest shift for me in the last few years, um, that has in general been very helpful in, in motivating me to write and liberating me to write is that there was a, there was a shift from, um, this sort of desperate sense that, Oh, I have to write because I want to be a writer, which means I have to write. I have to keep writing stuff. I have to get stuff published to coming to more of a place of consciously writing as a means of serving a specific community. Um, mm -hmm. And all of us are involved on some level with uh, the rabbit room and um, the, the wider rabbit room community. And um, which for those who don't know, rabbit room is a nonprofit organization and the, the mantra of the rabbit room is that art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And there, there is something um, 
very liberating about coming to see your creative efforts as a gift you have been given in order that you can serve other people through them. Um, and I think for me, there, there has just been um, a night and day kind of shift over the last few years. Um, once I quit being focused on myself and my own, you know, desperate attempts um, to become a writer and really began to, hmm. to try to, to figure out what sorts of things I could write um, that would serve this community. And then by extension, I think typically if something serves one community well, then um, that community becomes a part of extending that thing beyond that community. And, you know, it stands a chance of, of serving people well outside of that community. Mm. I have, man, we could talk about that sense of writing for a community for, for a long time, but we don't, we don't have time to do that. But I do have two kind of final hopefully rapid fire questions hey, for hey, you. Hey, David, can I, what can advice? I stop you just real quick? Can I say one more thing about that? Yeah, that I, I just feel like yeah. it would be, would be generous for maybe people to hear writers who are struggling too. Is that I think another big, um, you know, blockade running device for writers is to give up on the idea of perfection. And I know we hear that a lot, but like to, to be able to, to ship before it's ready, there's lots of little cliches that people use in this sort of community or startup or entrepreneurial or author sort of communities. But like if we are dedicated to perfection, then you, that is a paralyzing um, for me. So, uh, so giving up on the idea of perfection is very, very important as well as a way to sort of like get through the pain. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Well, I was just going to ask if you have uh, one single piece of advice that you would give to young writers or storytellers. Um, and so I guess that qualifies as one. <laughs> oh man. Okay. Yeah, but if you have, if you have something else it. you'd like to add, no, that actually is a good one. So you <laughs> yeah, can add one. another one though. Jonathan, as a writing teacher, um, let's say that you're, let's say that you're talking to not, maybe not to adults because I mean, these will apply to adults as well, but a lot of given that your writing is for middle grade readers, if you were had a young reader who was, was kind of beginning to feel like they might want to be a reader. I mean, a writer when they grow up or are already dabbling in that as a, as a young person, what advice would you give them? If you could just give them one piece of advice. Um, gosh, only one piece of advice, I guess, just, you know, pay attention to the world around you. That's, that's really where the, where the, where the action is. Uh, you know, we're, as writers, we're just trying to depict reality. And, um, and so, um, uh, writing is a, every, every story I've ever written has come from something I've seen somewhere in the world and occasionally in stories I've read. Um, but I would say, you know, make sure you read a lot, except the people who want to write already do read a lot. And so <laughs> since you've already read a lot now also pay really close attention to the world around you. Hmm the way people act, the way, uh, the way trees grow, just, you know, that's, that's the advice I would offer. It's not, it's not earth shattering, but that's what I would offer. Doug, what about you? I taught a creative writing class for a couple of years to high schoolers several years ago. And 
if they left the class with one takeaway, the thing that I, I that I tried to impart to them was the notion that writing is rewriting. That um, that your what you're trying to do, your craft becomes um, that that what separates what they were doing from what a professional published writer might be doing is really about the attention and the number of hours that they would be willing to put into it. Um, most of which is rewriting. Um, I know when I was younger, I would spit something out onto the page first draft, but I thought it was done. Um, and I thought it was brilliant and how dare anyone mess with it. Um, and it was a painful process of years to come to the point of realizing how, how well those things might have had a kernel of inspiration and something in there to be polished. Um, that there was necessarily that process of learning to polish something and repolish and repolish um, until it was what it needed to be, as opposed to just that more self-indulgent um, fit of inspiration. So I think, mm. I guess what I'm trying to say is that writing truly is a craft um, and there, that requires a devotion to an attention to, um, a willingness to make the sacrifices of, of time, um, and mental effort to do that crafting, um, that, that, that first draft is just a lump of clay. It's like, okay, you've, you've put something physically out there, but now you still have to do the hard, hard work of learning how to shape that thing. Um, so that would be my, my biggest piece of advice is just, um, for young, young people who want to write, um, is to, to cultivate that mindset that this is, um, this is going to require something of me. It's going to cost me something. Um, hmm. First drafts do not tend to be great. And that you have to be willing to, um, to weed through, to lose a lot of things that you thought were precious in your first writing of them, but that just don't serve the work as a whole. So, um, yeah, I feel like I'm starting to ramble now, but <laughs> well, Sam, do you want to, do you want to add anything to that? That you, besides, uh, don't strive too much for perfection. Yeah, I would. Um, I think this uh, kind of goes hand in hand with what, with what Douglas is saying. I think both of those, even what, what JR was saying about seeing the world, um, is I think both of those things are oriented towards other people. So, you know, instead of sort of everything, we see becoming about us or something. There's sort of like, it's a, it's fuel for sort of how we relate <laughs> to the world. And then, um, Doug talking about that, uh, is a way of being generous because it's not just self-expression. You know, it's, it's, uh, 
generous storytelling. So, but yeah, I would add, uh, I would add one thing that, that was that, that Zach Franzen um, told me one time, and I think it's just was, was really helpful. And I think would be helpful to anybody, particularly young people coming up. But, um, and that is this being is better than seeming. Uh, being is better than seeming. So there, there's so much energy that we can put into, maybe it's a particular t- temptation of the young, but there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of periphery, a lot of excitement about the idea of being an author. I want to be known as an author. I want to be known as a writer. And we get really, really worried about, am I allowed to call myself a writer? I haven't had anything published. Am I allowed to call myself an author? You know, all these kinds of things and like that. And, and do I have the look, do I have the right, do I have the right, um, um, hair dye or, per, you know, perfect uh, messenger bag, or like, do I have the look <laughs> and do I seem like a, an, an author? Do I seem like a yeah. creative? And that's where we get terms like, you know, I'm a creative. Oh, what are you? I'm a creative or, you know, these sort of like snobby kind of uh, ways to distinguish ourselves. And I think s- some of that, uh, and I'm not saying that's bad, all of it. I really don't even, I don't think that I actually don't even care like, you know, what kind of bag or what kind of a, you know, hair dye or whatever you have. Like I don't, that doesn't matter to me. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying being is better than seeming. Mm. So what happens when you actually, you know, what writers do is they just write and and they read and they, they have like cool things about them and and nerdy things about them. And so don't sweat it. Like if you want to be a writer, be a writer and being is way cooler than seeming. Mm. So whatever energy that you have, it's like, Oh, I'm going to get my, you know, I'm going to get my website to where I look like a writer. Like, that's fine. That's good. Obviously if you're a writer, you want to do, you want to do that. Or I want to, you know, I like these kinds of genes or kinds of whatever, like that's fine. But I think what you find when you actually meet actual people who are real storytellers, they don't always, fit you know sometimes they don't they're not good speakers for instance often because they're they're good writers <laughs> they're 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 not maybe always great at being in front of people or something they might they might not dress exactly the way you think you know but, be, but being is way better than seeming so i think just if you have energy to put into something just put it into it and, and what's cool about that is what happens uh when you actually do it is that you that you seem like a writer too because because you are mm-hmm. so, so you, you kind of get both in the bargain but, but I would put my energy into being if you can, instead of seeming. What kind of messenger bag do you wear? <laughs> well, this is how, this is how much I believe this now. Like I just gave my, me- the, the messenger bag I had, which was leather, uh, which I wore for years, uh, to my son. Oh, okay. And I use like a, an Adidas backpack, um, okay. the, because it's like so much more practical <laughs> and it's easy to go through airports and stuff. So I don't even have a messenger bag anymore. That's how committed I am to this thing. Again, <laughs> this Adidas backpack looks dumb, but uh, it does, it does the job. <laughs> All right. Hey, so, for each of you, what's the last great thing that you've read? Tim, since you had the floor there, I'll let you go first. And you don't need to, you know, for the sake of our listeners, we probably should wrap this up, but you can uh, just give <laughs> they, quick, They've, quick they've been through enough. I appreciate <laughs> your sensitivity to them. <laughs> We've done enough damage. Um, so I am always sort of rereading the, uh, the Master and Commander, the Aubrey Maturin series. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, I'm reading that probably for the fourth time, third or fourth time now. And I'm on book eight or nine or something in that. Wow. Uh, it's not always great for young kids. Um, it's not, uh, it's not, uh, uh, free of, of, um, the baser thing sometimes, but it's, I, I, the, mostly it's a really noble series and I absolutely love it. 
Uh, Doug, what's the best thing that you've read lately? Um, not too long ago, I read Gilead, um, mm. the book by it's Marilyn Robinson, right, Jonathan? Yeah, that's right. Um, just a, a, a quietly stunning, uh, beautifully written book. Um, her feel for the the language and for uh, the personalities of characters. Um, it, it was just remarkable. So. It's a great book. My only problem with Marilyn Robinson is she doesn't like Flannery O'Connor. Didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. I just, uh, I just read Brian's head revisited for the first time. I'm, I'm Oh yeah. And, yeah. Loved it. We did a, we've done a whole series of podcasts on both of those books. Yeah, probably like six or seven episodes on each of them. So mm-hmm. can't say we've done it on master and commander, but we probably should now that I think about it. Although that would take yeah, a with, it, time with all those books. Well, <laughs> gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me. This has been uh, enlightening and uh, quite interesting. And I'm grateful that you uh, were willing to share a little bit of your Friday morning time with me. I, you probably should be writing right now, but instead you're talking to me about writing. So maybe I'm doing you this a favor. This is so much easier. <laughs> this was so easy. <laughs> well, thank you to S.D. Smith, Jonathan Rogers, and Douglas McKelvey for joining me in this episode of Libromania. To learn more about S.D. Smith, head over to sdsmith.net. To learn more about Douglas McKelvey, head over to dougmckelvey.com. And to learn more about Jonathan Rogers, head over to jonathan-rogers.com. All those links will be posted in the show notes, so you'll be able to get easy access to them to see all the spelling and all that kind of thing. Thank you so much for listening to Libromania. Please remember, subscribe, rate, review. We really appreciate all your support, and we really appreciate when you help us spread the word to make more episodes like this possible. Don't forget about all the other great content on the Close Reads Podcast Network. We have our flagship show, Close Reads, discussing novels. We have The Plays the Thing, discussing Shakespeare's entire canon, one act at a time. And we have The Daily Poem, which is an audio anthology brought to you each morning, featuring some of the greatest poems ever written. Thank you for listening. This has been another episode of Libromania here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, looking forward to talking to you next week. Happy reading. Happy reading.